When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. By any means necessary. FBI believer. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year. Zachary Davis, Jim Redfin, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Cyanide, Free, Rudyard Winch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, B.T. Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a rather sunny and glorious Bay Area. Now, uh, normally we have our panel of, of experts with us, uh, but that is somewhat uh, neutered uh, today. We only have two. We have Clint and we have Paul, which is uh, somewhat uh, perfect because uh, Paul is our new best friend who bats for the other team. Um, he is somewhat of a right winger who might be able to uh, poke some holes into uh, Jane Jun's argument that um, it's white women who are the backbone of the Republican Party. Now, Jane Jun, good friend of the podcast, she's a professor of political science at the University of Southern California. She's the author of five books on political participation and public opinion in the United States. Um, Jane, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. You're always good value when you, when you come on the show. The media narrative has been that uh, one of the one of the weaknesses of the Republican Party has been that it's losing white women, these college-educated uh, women who uh, were definitely put off by uh, Trump's antics. You're going to tell us that's all for nothing. You're going to tell us that uh, the, the the traditional political narrative, at least the one since 2016, we've got it all wrong. How and why have the media got it wrong? Well, I think they have it mostly wrong, some wrong, a little bit right. I mean, the Republican Party may be losing some white women, but they're also gaining other white women. I think it's important to remember that women are, in fact, the modal voter in U.S. politics. So if you think about just if you put all Republican voters into a big, clear Starbucks cup, uh, uh, I'm not endorsing here, but if you put them into a big, clear cup, it would be mostly, it would be more full of women than it is with men. So despite the fact that people think that Republicans are, you know, the Mitch McConnells and their descendants, 
they're actually Melissa McConnell's and their descendants. So the majority of the Republican Party, by a small amount, are women voters. They're not reflected as much in the elected officials, but they are nevertheless the backbone of the Republican Party. So the media have it right and they have it wrong. And we have to also remember just one last thing, that every election is a new electorate. So the electorate in 2016 is different from the electorate in 2020, not only because people leave and enter the electorate, they they die or they're born into it, but also different people come in and are mobilized. So my guess is that while if the media wanted to say that well-educated white women were leaving the Republican Party or leaving Trump, some of them were, but Trump was also gaining white women voters from other groups. So let's understand how the the American electorate has maybe changed si- since 1960. And we don't want to go through every election, but maybe pick out uh, two or three elections before we get to 2016 and explain how the modal voter has maybe changed or how the composition of the American electorate has changed. Well, let's let's see what Clinton Paul think. Um, who was the modal voter in 1964, you guys? Who do you think the modal voter was? Were there more women or more men in the electorate? Because right now there are more women in the American electorate. How about in 1964? This is the year that Lyndon Johnson defeats Barry Goldwater in a landslide. I have a little bit of a cheat sheet on this one, so I will uh, let Paul answer. Oh, it feels like um, I didn't think I, I didn't think there would be a pop quiz. So, well, I am a professor, Paul. Yeah, exactly. Who's the? What was the question? Who's the model voter? Did you say the modal voter? So who's who's more? Are there more women or more men in the electorate? 1964, 1980. Just you can take those two days times. It's got to be a trick question. It's got to be women again, isn't it? It is. The only ones that uh, the only Democrats that women have voted for a majority since 52 or something. Isn't that a thing? Yes, that is correct. So uh, white female voters have only voted for Democrats more than Republicans in two presidential elections. One of them is Lyndon Johnson in 64. Do you know the other one? Clinton. It's Clinton in 1996. That's correct. So if you look at the time overall, at least, you know, from the fifties on white female voters have always been Republican supporters and they were no different in 2016 and 2020. There's some controversy about how large that number was or that proportion was. But the fact remains that white women vote for Republicans more than they vote for Democrats. And that's quite different from women of color. Women of color are heavily and disproportionately Democratic. So Jane... We'll make an exception for racists and sex offenders. That's the usual, the big pull for <laughs> Democrats. Uh, yeah, that's right. So Jane, let's take the racists and, and the sex offenders uh, completely <laughs> one side, Asian. Quite a good gag. Every, Quite, every election we try, Royfield, but you guys keep getting them elected. You, you know what? Exactly. Exactly. Why do we think that that happened in those two elections? Why were those two elections an aberration? What were the Democratic Party saying which was so receptive to uh, the modal American voter, i.e. women, in those two elections? Well, I think it's really 1964 and not 96. Because remember, 96, you've got a pretty weak Republican candidate in Bob Dole, And then you also have Ross Perot in the mix, and he pulled a lot of votes away from um, the Republican candidate. I think it's really 1964 that's at issue here. And many, many observers point to the perception that Barry Goldwater was uh, unbalanced somehow, even though historically now most people don't perceive that to be the case, but he seemed to be very far to the right. And he was at that time also remember running against Lyndon Johnson who came in to take over the presidency after John F. Kennedy was murdered and I think then assassinated. And I think that that made a big difference in people's sense of wanting stability and a steady hand. And I would say that that was potentially one of the motivating factors because in this case, also men support, um, Lyndon Johnson as well. So it's a landslide for Johnson during that year. I think much of it has to do with the context of that election following John F. Kennedy's assassination. So then what would have been the, the appeal of Clinton uh, specifically? Was it just the fact that the vote was split between Bush and Clinton and Perot? And so that's the reason for the statistical quirk. I think that's some of it, but also remember that 
that uh, Al Gore comes pretty close. He comes pretty close in 2000. Of course, he wins the election, but he comes pretty close to actually winning the election among white women. It's fairly close during that time, too. So remember that these margins are not that different, but they're large enough to always push Republican women over. And I think the important point of comparison is to consider other women, so women of color, are not even close. 60, 70, 80, 90% of Asian American, uh, Latina, and African American women support Democrats. And so the distinction here is almost by frame of reference who these white women are really more the outlier to other women. And that's embedded in the fact that Republican and Democratic Party have quite different platforms, perspectives, and positions on issues that affect women in terms of equality, let's say, uh, choice, equal pay, representation, uh, workplace, sexual harassment. These are all issues that people have thought of as gendered issues for which the Republican and Democratic Party take quite different positions on, at least in the present period. Is there um, is there a significant change in behavior with white women or any women at all when they become mothers, parents, if they leave the workplace to become um, homemakers, etc.? But basically parented, does that alter the stats at all with voting patterns? Well, that's a very good question. I think most people think that it does. So most people think that um, as women become more uh, tied to the family or for that matter, less independent, they think they may become more Republican because what you'll see often is that women with children and married women are more Republican, but actually it's just a selection bias, right? If you think about policies that are necessary for women to you know, let's say it was childcare or schooling and education, those are often more supported by Democratic candidates. And so if what you're asking is, I think that there are arguments for both sides, but you don't see those specifically being the birth of a child or adding a child, having a big difference or a change on women's political behavior. If there is a swing voter in U.S. politics, it's white women. White women are sometimes go Republican and sometimes go Democratic. Um, Black women never swing. Black women are only and almost always strong Democratic voters because there's nothing the Republican Party will give them. So I think to the extent, let's say, for example, this most recent benefit that the Biden administration has uh, brought out for families with children or women with children, if they're um, not with a spouse, this is a policy that will benefit Republican and Democratic women equally. Uh, if they have children. And so it will be interesting to see whether or not in the extent to which you see some uh, ticket splitting or voting for Biden if he runs again, or for that matter, for Democratic candidates in the next round. And when you say, uh, it was just uh, at the beginning when I was still getting, I was a bit discombobulated. So was it only um, Clinton 96 that this was um, the uh, white women voting Democrat, the exception? In 92, was it? did it still break uh, according to traditional patterns of they predominantly voted Republican. Yes, that's correct. In 92, remember that you've got uh, Perot getting a much larger proportion of the vote. But yes, uh, white women voted uh, more for the Republican in 92. That would be George, the original George Bush, the first George Bush. Uh, what does this say about our kind of framing of uh, of male politicians? You know, why did so many white women still support Trump if our lefty agenda media narrative is to be believed? You know, it was the pussy grab. We heard the audio tape. He's a terrible misogynist. He very obviously hates women. What were those white women hearing, which still could vote Republican, which the rest of us weren't? Well, I think that it, it all goes to the question of what our expectations are. And you sort of hit it, Roy felt that we have this expectation that if you see somebody misbehaving or misbehaving, let's say in this case against women and a white woman, in that case, I believe the woman that uh, Trump was saying he was going to grab or wanted to grab or could grab was, I believe she was a white woman in a purple dress or something, right? So it wasn't as if he was saying, I'm going to go out there to the slave quarters and rape all the African-American slaves, or I'm going to go to the border and rape all them. He, he doesn't talk about that. It's not about that. And I think that what the, what he was trying to say when he announced his candidacy is he said something. I don't know if, if you guys remember this. He comes down that escalator, Trump Tower, and he tells us that, um, 
he's going to keep the Mexican rapists out and the, the black people in, you know, keep us safe from that. And who is he talking to there? I'm not even sure he understood who he was talking to, but he's essentially talking to white women. He's telling them he's going to keep them safe from the likes of you guys, right? He's going to keep white women safe by keeping them on a pedestal. They may be in a cage, but they're on a pedestal and they're safe. So he says, I'll keep you first in race if you take the, your position as second in sex. And just about a majority or a little bit more of a majority of white women voters every time they take that trade. They make that bargain. They take that Faustian bargain, knowing that the situation or the circumstances of, in this case, white heteropatriarchy support them and help them. They can see the benefit to it. On the other hand, the reason why black women voters almost never vote Republican in very small proportions, single digits, is that they don't benefit from either patriarchy or white supremacy. So they say no. But for white women, in many ways, they receive what uh, feminists have called the protection racket. They agree to that. They agree to be protected for a price, and that price is their own agency with respect to sex. Are we going to see a change in the upper echelons of the Republican Party? You make this really compelling case that the, the backbone of the voter base is women, white women. And you look at the, the upper echelons of the Republican Party, and it's white men old white men. Uh, one of the key things which I think all political scientists have really realized in, in the last two voting cycles was the power of black women. And obviously, they're a much smaller voting block. And, and, you, and you can start to see that definitely on, on the ground with local organizers, but then also uh, with the amount of uh, diverse women there are actually now within uh powers uh, within positions of power within the Democratic Party. Are we going to see that within the Republican Party if white women are its beating heart? Well, white women have been the Republican Party's beating heart from the 60s and really in the 50s. In fact, more women voters supported Nixon over Kennedy. You would think it would be just the opposite, right? Wasn't Kennedy supposedly the heartthrob of his time and Nixon the sweaty, clammy, pale person on the, on the first nationally televised debate? Yeah, but, but white women preferred Nixon over Kennedy. Um, I think that, you know, it's been this way for a long time. And give me five, let's just go with three. Give me three Republican women who are potentially on the uh, Republican ticket for president. At the top of the ticket, not second. Give me three. Can you name them? And I'm not talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Probably not Liz Cheney now either. Yeah. Can you name three Republican women? No. Can you give me one? Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, but she's not white. She's she's not white. Yeah. I'm not running either, but I uh, can I can I ask why you're disqualifying uh, either Marjorie Taylor Greene or Liz Cheney? <laughs> Good question, Clint. Uh, the Republican field is going to have a lot of competition, and you know there are a lot of dynamics there. But I mean, I think that you could imagine under certain conditions that either of them could potentially be. A nominee, probably not in 2024, but as much as any other candidate has to like find the conditions and find the, find a, a, a navigated path forward, I think that they, you know, are not totally disqualified from, from that position. Well, I think that's correct. I think in some universe that could happen, but remember that Trump is truly the outlier in terms of getting the nomination despite not being wanted by the party. The parties really drive with it, with that exception in 16. And then you could argue in 20 through an incumbency effect. The parties really drive who's going to make it and look at, look at the United States Senate. It's, it's heavily and much more heavily populated by Democratic women. I believe the House delegation is 45% female on the Democratic side and maybe 10% on the Republican side. You don't have uh, what would sports fans call it a, a deep bench? You don't have a deep bench of national politicians among Republicans. We can name them really on one hand. And, you know, whether Liz Cheney would probably have been more relevant, but at this point, her opposition to Trump is leading her afoul of many of the voters, as well as, in fact, in particular, the RNC. So I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is 
truly the outlier candidate and unlikely unless the entire um, country becomes like the, or the entire band of Republican voters becomes like the Florida panhandle. But nevertheless, I think um, what you have to see is it's not just how compelling the candidate is, but how much institutional support they have in the party. Republicans have a very, very shallow bench of women. Uh, absent national political experience, or for that matter, even in the Senate or a long time in the House, it's going to be very difficult for someone to run. Couldn't we say that this is a real triumph for the Republican Party in that Republican women don't need token representation. They don't need to see women in, in powers of authority in the party for them to recognize that this is their party. You know, one thing that us people do on the left is, you know, we, we like token representation and i don't mean token as a pejorative but you know we can say look at the democratic party it's it's black and it's brown and it's female and it's gay and, and whatever white women just say you know what these 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 are these are the issues which we believe in we don't care who represents us it can be old craggy white men and and that's a good thing well if old craggy white men represent what the republican party stands for then it's consistent isn't it but if the Republican Party, in essence, wants to keep things the way things are, right? That's the nature of conservatism. So maybe not conservatism in, in the 2020 or the 2016 variety, but one of the elements and the strongest elements of Republicanism is conservatism, keeping things the same, right? Holding on to traditional values, whether those traditional values are about wor- worshiping a Christian God or... Um, you know, having personal freedoms or a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and you bring me a drink at the end of the day and make my dinner warm. It, whatever those traditions are, those traditions for Republican, the Republican Party are much more steeped in, in male privilege and patriarchy. It's something that's accepted by those voters. So to them, descriptive representation, as you noted, may be less important because women don't represent the traditional ways. It's not altogether, it's not really any different than any other conservative party anywhere else in the world. So it made not a jot of difference electorally whether Joe Biden had a female vice president then? Probably not. I don't know that it made much of a difference at all. If anything, it may have pushed Republican women on the fence away. She's not just a a woman. She's a black woman and an Indian woman. Those are social distancing rather than pulling voters in. Democrats don't have a choice. It's anybody but Trump. I'd be interested in your guest's perspective on what's the opportunity for the future. What would it take for women in the United States to really capture the power that they should have based on the numbers? And is that a, a way that we could somehow get onto a better path in this country? Well, that's a big question, Doug, and an aspirational one. I think it requires everybody to work on that, right? I mean, maybe it's okay to some people that women don't have the power. Um, I think if you just stop and think about many of the narratives in stories, whether they're children's stories or television or movies, Maybe women don't want the power. Maybe they're portrayed as if they don't want to have their own power and their own agency and that being taken care of, being put on a pedestal in a gilded cage. You're safe, but you're also trapped. That may not necessarily be a bad thing to some people. So it's not universal that it doesn't have to be a gendered phenomenon that we look for those opportunities in the future, as you noted, Doug, that women to capture power. In fact, nobody gives up power easily, do they? If you had power and all the power and money in the world, it'd be pretty hard to give that up. Um, I ask students all the time, like if I had to switch places with you, I wouldn't do it. You know, I'm going to, I want to be the one in front of the room, giving the lecture and giving the grades, not the other way around. And I think that not only does it require a desire for agency and egalitarianism in every, in ordinary people, but there also has to be you know, that same ideological position among the people who are willing to give it up. You have to give up that power. Some of the perspectives um, that you've mentioned here, Jane, about uh, traditional roles, traditional gender roles, um, you know, traditional family values are, are actually really quite unpopular 
uh, when you look at survey data and you may be able to um, have some more insight on um, on exactly how that plays out. But how, I mean, does that kind of point to, to at some point just partisanship that women, uh, Republican w- women may, may very well be, um, you know, looking for a little bit more, uh, you know, progressive, you know, from where they are anyway, uh, values and, and role in society, but, but that partisanship may very well simply override uh, their, their preferences at that point? Right. Well, uh, that's a good question. And partisanship can't be separated from this. Partisanship is the reason why they're, so you may say like, well, you know, I don't really, I don't really like Trump, but you know, I like his tax policy or like these other elements of it. But remember that deeply embedded in the Republican position, and this is at least in the United States, deeply embedded in that Republican position is a fairly strong white supremacy. And that all comes as part and parcel of the package. It comes with why, for example, why is it that people, you know, are so intent on charter schools versus on public education? Why were people so against busing? It's not necessarily only because that's, that was a Republican issue. That was a segregationist and a white supremacy issue. And so many of the Republican party policies have been deeply intertwined with racially inegalitarian positions. And it's hard to separate that. So when you see, it may not be the case that regular Republican card-carrying women are super white supremacists. They may not be. And I I just want to give a couple of provisos or stipulations that people are complex and there's a lot of heterogeneity in it. Just because you're a white woman doesn't mean you're going to be a Republican. But I'll tell you this, the next time you're sitting on a plane, if you ever get on a plane again and you're sitting next to a white woman, you got a 50-50 chance that she voted for Trump and or Biden, right? It's probably more likely if she's flying on a plane and, you know, maybe you're going to Atlanta. No, Dallas. Um, it's much more likely she's going to be a white woman. So, or rather a Republican and a Trump supporter. So let's just say that people are complex. They're not only just because of their party ID. You see people like Cindy McCain and other Democrat Republican women who spoke out strongly against Trump. So, People also have agency. They can make choices. They can change. And this goes to Doug's question, opportunities for the future. Hopefully it'll be different in terms of uh, lower numbers of, let's say, or lower proportions of women being sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. These are not, and women being paid more than 78 or 85 cents on the dollar. At my own university, women professors at my level, the the level of full professor, we're paid 85 cents on the dollar to men professors. That's just in the data. Um, it's not, it's not clear what the reason is. I might hazard a few guesses, but my point is nevertheless that over time, maybe it will change. It has changed a little bit, but remember the idea of man being created first and then women came second. Um, whether you believe the Bible or not, these are long standing elements of society you can't undo them in a hundred years a hundred years since the united states uh ratified the 19th amendment for women's right to vote it's a lot to undo in a hundred years we're not there yet jen we called you up on stage and john muted so uh it's your time thank you so much and i didn't hear some of the start of this conversation so forgive me if you've already given this information i had two quick things to say um, I, I have a philosophy on why women get paid less, um, just based on some data. And my big question though is, is there data as to why you believe that the reason, um, my, I have two boys, they go to public school, but why you believe that the, 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 the charter schools and the busing, when you were talking about that, that that the principles and the values and all and and the reason why people choose that is because of race. Mm-hmm. It's not always, Jen. It's not always. Um, traditionally, traditionally it was. And if you think about, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, I didn't hear you. I don't want you to perceive that I'm talking in absolutes. I know there are exceptions, but implying that now, where where does that come from? I think it comes from the desire for, and I think if you look at, oh, consider how 
segregated residential areas in the United States are and where uh, people of color live and where whites live. So in locations where there are mostly uh, white people, um, there's not as many charter schools, right? There's still charter schools, but there's not as many. And the, the strong em- impetus for charter schools to get to leave, in essence, public schools, large bureaucratic systems, whether they are, you know, in California or Texas or Michigan, are strongest in areas where there are larger populations of minority children. Now, I should also note that there are plenty of African-American, Latinx, and even Asian-American parents who want to send their children to charter schools too. So there's a panoply of reasons why that's the case. I think historically, it's always been, at least in the American South, and then even in the Northeast, that school segregation was at the heart of women's participation in making schools, quote unquote, better or nicer for their own children. So that's usually been the example as to, or the historical example of where it comes from. And I think going forward in the present, it's a lot more complicated than that. Ryan, the Ryan Phipps, uh, you've been waiting patiently to, to have your turn. You've unmuted yourself a few times. Uh, Ryan, ask your question, sir. Yeah, um, this is super interesting. Um, this is a very like specific issue, especially for the Black community. Um, okay. when it comes to our discussions in relation to white women, right? Um, as you said, um, I really think, I think you said, uh, as late of Nixon, did you say, Jane? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that directly ties into the Southern strategy, right? You're right. Absolutely. So, you know, that's been a very big, um, how do you say, like the way the white women have been used politically and also used their whiteness politically has been very, and I'm talking about large scale, right? Not large scale, how they vote in the blocks. It's very insidious, right? And and like, as you say, they hold all the true power because they are the most dependent voting block for Republicans, but they also escape a lot of blame because as you said, Redfield, they don't, they're not visibly the ones doing the actions, right? They're not the politicians. They're not the ones who are actually making decisions for that they let the they don't need their representative politics you say before our token politics so they have white mills white mills do the bidding right, while they actually get all the benefits or the or the source of power um this specifically has been shown in the black community in relation to like it comes up a lot in interracial dating how like mm-hmm. white black a lot of black women feel like white women use black men and black men don't see themselves being used because white women aren't the face of white supremacy white men are in your in your research, your looks towards like the dynamics of that, how white women's agency is deployed against minority groups, but they're also fetishized to the point by minority groups when it comes to dating and marriage. Ryan, you must be a budding scholar. Um, are you <laughs> in a PhD program somewhere? I, it was so funny. I was just reading an article today, reviewing an article, and it's it's on um, the cover of Ideal Motherhood and the idea that you know, in this case. Uh, white uh, females sort of use the cover of motherhood to shade their otherwise white supremacist tendencies. And I, um, I'm not sure if I, I buy the argument, but I do think that there's something to the idea that white women have deployed their power and done so undercover. But at the same time, I think it's quite important to recognize that white women are not as powerful, right? They, they do have power. They are and they do maybe sometimes escape blame. But more than anyone in the United States, white women suffer from poverty. White women suffer from sexual violence. White women suffer at the hands of society. And whether that is a you know male-dominated society or otherwise, there are more poor white women out there than anybody else. And this, I'm not trying to say that there isn't poverty and suffering among other groups as well, but as a pure uh, actual numbers, there are more women, white women with children who live on um, AFDC and government benefits. And so I'm not trying to say that, therefore, uh, this shouldn't be a problem, but um, white women are also on the receiving end of the negativity of patriarchy. And I do think that right now is a pretty, I'm not going to say it's a hard time to be a white person, but the blowback against um, white people, whether they're inherently or explicitly racist or not is 
I think it's never been as strong as this, and it's never been as powerful as this. And I think it makes people uncomfortable, but it is something we have to talk about. So Ryan, you're right. The the Southern strategy started it all. This is, of mm-hmm. course, following um, segregation and and the Strom Thurmonds of the world. And prior to that, the, um, you know, Jefferson Davises. But uh, you are correct. The white women have been used as well as use their power. That is correct. Yeah. That's why they're in a difficult and interesting position. Yeah, I see it most prominent or discussed the most, but in like uh, feminism circles, in relation of white women, how they leverage their um, privilege in those spaces. Uh, Many of black women I know have actually like stepped away from feminism. Mm-hmm. They they believe in womanism because it speaks about the, it's inter- the intersectionality of their de- identity. Um, yeah. yeah, that's why I most probably have what I first started like really picking it apart. Um, especially in relation to like the women's march, and like it's just like it's like a it's a perceived duplicitous. I can't say the word right. Duplicitousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how like, duplicity? Uh, duplicity is another way to say it. How how the the visible like oh white women want to help like minorities people of color people disadvantaged want to fight back, but you look when you go to like the voting rolls, you see like the huge block of white women voting for things that not only you know against these minority identities they say they support, but also against that specific like woman identities when it comes to like access to health care or mm-hmm. the quality of life or wages. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Norm, you go next. And then, Paul, I think you might need to um, uh, push back somewhat because I think we're getting a little bit too liberal and lefty here. And we might need some of your right-wing sanity. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Well, I want to keep it really simple and really direct. I'm not sure how we would define white women. So let's just say uh, women in various shades. Why do women vote Republican? Well, everybody has interests. And uh, certainly people want to feel safe. Everybody pays taxes. People want to pay less taxes. If one party identifies itself with, quote unquote, law and order, and some people are worried about their personal safety, they may associate the Republican Party with uh, predictability, especially in these really sort of unpredictable times. Uh, The law and order, we've just gone through uh, some real uh, tumult in this country, and we're still going through it, and it looks like we're going to be going through some more. And um, lower taxes, nobody likes to pay more taxes. Everybody likes to pay uh, fewer taxes. So um, in the case of uh, the last guy who was in charge, I think people held their nose and voted their interest. Lower taxes, uh, more police protection, and by the way, uh, more employment, because that was another uh, thing that he was selling himself on. Those, so those are some uh, now sort of uh, bullet points, very uh, high level, meaning superficial and simple and clear bullet points. Oh, God, look, just to answer the general question, I think one of the reasons they might be voting Republican 
is because of the way these uh, the left, the Democrats, describe almost everything in a kind of dystopian, catastrophic way. We started off with it's obvious that Trump hates women. It's not obvious. Uh, segregation, George Wallace, Alabama, Democrat. Charter schools, it's not about race. We don't want unions running our kids' schools. Uh, I've got two daughters. If they're, according to US Census, going to do 36 average hours a week, as opposed to 41 average hours a week of work for Amanda's, I'd expect them to be paid the 85%. So, sorry, I've just been running outside with the dog. So, this is the, this is the problem. It's just, it's like, for me, it's one's holding one's head going, yes, these statistics can be viewed either way. If one has an agenda, they will be viewed that uh, uh, everybody, everybody in the Republican Party is evil and that Trump literally, like I said, the opening line from you, Royfield, it's obvious that Trump hates women. I, I don't know when that was agreed, but it's taken as a fact. I remember Hillary Clinton saying that Bill, this is in 2016, Bill hadn't abused his position, uh, that Monica was an adult, there was no abuse of power, and in fact, when she was defending Bill against the accusers initially, when he was still in office, uh, she was describing them as white trash. So I don't know how that fits in any kind of supporting women Democrat agenda, but that's the, you know, people on the right aren't just taking this kind of propaganda and going, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, good people, Democrats, bad people, Republicans. Wallace was a Democrat. Uh, ju just a point of clarification, Paul. I framed my whole question by saying that we think that Trump was obviously bad, us, us on the left, and very obviously a whole load of uh, women, uh, the modal voters of America, white women didn't. So I, I was. No, no. You said you said you said it's obvious that Trump hates women. You can play back the recording. You said it. That's all I'm saying. It's just like I don't mind, but it's kind of that does go to the heart of what his intention is. And I'm saying I I don't mind I don't mind you extrapolating what you think that voters might think. But Trump hates women is obvious. I'm, I'm thinking that's a stretch, but it goes with the it does go with the strategy and the tactics of you know the political left. All right, so um, I need to play back the tape uh, be before I upload it, um, and I will do that, Paul. Um, however, Jane, a uh, couple of points. We, well, had, we had Norm, and then we had uh, Paul. Let's go in reverse. Paul, I think, you know, you are voicing the frustrations um, of anyone who listens and, you know, to rhetoric on the, on, uh, the Democratic side or the liberal side, right? It's rhetoric. That's what politics is. Politics is the deployment of, of ideas and perspectives and positions through rhetoric. If it weren't for rhetoric, neither of us would be here. None of us would be here. Um, so it is the case that, you know, in rhetoric, is, is there exaggeration? Of course there is. Or is there sort of extrapolation? Of course there is. I think it wouldn't be um, too much of an exaggeration to say that most men in power or people in power abuse others, whether it's... Um, does anybody watch Veep? You know, uh, Selena, she abuses her, her men employees, right? And if she could, she abused them all equally. If we had women in power, we'd probably see the same thing. There are examples of that. Look at Katie Hill, member of Congress from California who had a threesome with her husband and a female staffer. I would call that abusing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to hate a particular gender or something. It just means that you're abusing. Did Bill Clinton do it? Hell yeah, he did. And of course he did. Did he pay? He didn't really by Democratic point. This is not according to Hillary. This is what I'm saying. She was she is one of the most powerful people in the world and a woman. And that woman said that Bill didn't. And that's the point. This is not a general wash about my politics. I'm saying the candidate in 2016 said that Bill hadn't abused his power. And it's as plain as the nose on my face that he had. She said he hadn't. That's the point. Well, OK, so, you know, but that's part of the strategy and the rhetoric that she, the position that she was put in, right? In another circumstance, what, what, if you were advising her, what would you have told her to do? Come clean now, Hillary. It's not going to affect you. It would have affected her. In the long run, it affected her. She went between a rock and a hard place. She won the popular vote. She did. But, um, she would have won it by so, if she'd have admitted it. So was it Hillary who abused these women or was it Bill Clinton? 
He wasn't running for office, now was he? She was. And if she made when a she, statement that wasn't defense team, when she when she took on his defenses when he was uh, when this was all first brought up in Arkansas and she described them as white trash, she certainly did. That's exactly what she did. And she had an agency to do that. Okay. Well, so she did. I mean, does that does that uh what does that and violate everything else that we've talked about? I don't think so. Just one other thing. George Wallace was not a Democrat. He was a Dixiecrat. And that was, as you know, this occurred before the realignment of the Democratic Party in the South. So whites realigned to the Republican Party. And uh, so Wallace may have been a Democrat in name, but he was a segregationist, a Dixiecrat by label. Um, Senator Robert Byrd when he was a recruiter for the Klan. Oh, that too. Yes. Robert Byrd, of course, West Virginia, right? Um, I just want to make a comment uh, about something Norm said, and this also goes to what you're talking about, Paul, um, to say that voters are rational. Well, of course they are. For the most part, they're going to follow their interests. No one's saying that that isn't true. Say, no one's saying that feeling safe in law and order, feeling safe in law and order is different. It's a heterogeneous phenomenon. If you're a black man, Feeling safe because of law and order and because of law enforcement is actually not the case. You're much more likely to be murdered by a police officer or in the, in the, in a traffic stop if you're a black man than uh, as a white man. So feeling safe is heterogeneous on the basis of race. So you can I think say you're that you're much more true. likely to be killed in crime than you are by a cop. Well, true. But that is correct, Norm, but it doesn't, that wasn't my point. My point was who is more likely to be killed by law enforcement, black people or white people? Yes, by crime, of course, black people are more likely to be killed by crime, as are white people to be more, more likely to be killed by crime. But my point here is what does it mean to feel safe? So you, I think you need to consider not only and our main question wasn't really like why why only do white women vote uh republican we could have asked like why do white men vote republican why do some cubans vote republican why do koreans vote republican because they do some of them do the question is why is it why are white women so different from other women that was really the question we were asking and why when trump after he says i'm going to grab you by the pussy girl that means he's taken off the velvet glove and unsheath the iron hand of patriarchy. Why do st- women still support him after that? Because nobody wants to be sexually assaulted, for the most part, I will say, man or woman. Why do they still do it after that? That's the motivating question, folks. Well, you sort it's of- not, it's <laughs> not, does ideology matter or not? The question is, why are, are white women so much more different? Why are they so much more Republican than other women? So as Jane has kind of pointed out, um, there's, there's fundamentally one question of which implies a second, which is why white women vote Republican. And, and Jane is a professor who has done uh, extensive research looking at the voting patterns of Americans and has singled out this one phenomena. And the reason why um, this is of interest to me is because there has been this, and I will say a liberal lefty, lefty media agenda since 2016 that white suburban women were leaving the Republican Party. And let's say us lefties have taken some some what of solace in that. There was the great women's march, you know, the 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 weekend Trump got into power and we were led to believe that there is this narrative. However, the data, the science tells us otherwise. So so, so then the second question is as as Jane has really rightly outlined it is why are white women different from from other women within the United States. Abdul, you've come on stage, sir. Um, why don't you uh, give us your two pennies worth, as, as we say in England? I am, I think this is certainly a question that, uh, that I um, endeavor um, to answer. Um, and it's, it's really hard to, to, um, to really settle on an answer. I, I was, um, Listening to um, a professor, um, I believe, uh, of sociology at Hofstra University named Jesse Daniels, um, who um, seeks to to write a book um, about uh, white 
um, uh, female vulnerability. Um, and she makes the case um, in a number of um, instances, makes the case that um, that feminism um, without intersectionality is completely um, compatible with white supremacy. Um, and I think that um, in the U.S. context, um, I think that um, white supremacy, um, well, is supreme uh, over, um, uh, you know, other considerations uh, insofar as uh, white women uh, are concerned. Um, it may not have not been the majority of white women who voted for Donald Trump, but it was still a significant plurality, um, despite uh, the things that he had said, the things that he had done, um, and uh, yeah, and I think that's that's. Um, I think white supremacy, white supremacy is implicated here. I'm going to display my my hand here. I always kind of worry when um, we where very quickly the conversation uh, goes to white supremacy. I utterly believe it's a thing, but I utterly appreciate as somebody on the left that when we use those terms liberally, that those um, on the right who could be persuaded by our, by our argument and who just happen also to be white, some of them become incredibly uh, defensive. That's where, that's where I, I sit w- with the language of white supremacy. Is uh, America institutionally in favour of white folks? I think it'd be impossible to argue against it. But if we're trying to engage uh, with people who don't in- instinctively and reflexively necessarily hold that view because they haven't thought about it, as soon as I think people engage their minds, they they can come to that view. I just think we need to be some, somewhat careful. And the, one of the things about Mid Atlantic is what we're trying to do is to, to try and engage people uh, who don't necessarily believe what what we believe. To to be fair, um, the term that I use um, is white supremacy. I I do not in any way um, uh, implicate um, white women as white supremacists. And I think the the, the former. Um, is certainly um, is a term that that actually describes um, what you yourself would concede to, which is that there are um, systems and institutions um, uh, embedded uh, in uh, in this country um, that uh, that 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 privilege um, whiteness um, over um, over certain groups, um, and I think in the way that that others on the right um, are. Uh, kind of reflexive um, in, in kind of shutting down and hearing the term white supremacy. I think that that itself is worthy, um, you know, of addressing head on. Like, I'm not saying that white women are white supremacists. I'm saying that um, much in the way, I think it's just fair that, that, that they have, that they do find um, some degree uh, or they have, uh, yeah, so they do find some degree of purchase with that system um, you know, it is a system that that certainly advances uh, their sense and their feeling of safety and positioning, um, which is not to say that they're necessarily racist. Um, so I just I just wanted to clarify that point. Uh, and thank you for the clarification. Um, we're not going to keep this uh, going too much longer. I said to Jane, we're only going to have her for, for an hour. And uh, she actually thought we were going to be record, starting to record this an hour earlier than we actually did. So I'm really mindful of her time. But we do have Sophia on stage. So Sophia, it's, it's your time. Could, could, we, could we break down uh, white women a, as a cohort? So um, as they get older, do they become more Republican? Is there this big divide between college-educated and non-college educated um how do is this phenomenon of the suburbs real over urban and rural let's look at that Uh, and i think then we can stop saying that women are a monolith in that regard white women anyway right well you know it's not as if the day you get married you all of a sudden change your party registration to be republican Ooh, i'm married i'm going to become republican now it's also not the case that age is fully and always related i mean Paul just brought up Hillary Clinton. This last time I checked, she was in her 70s. She's a, obviously a Liz Warren. I mean, there is not about age only. It's not only about suburbs. It's not only about rural. It's not only about well-educated or not. There are patterns to white women's vote, but those patterns are probably in some 
ways pretty similar to others, to other groups as well. So it's not only white women, the same is true for men. I think that what, what we're after here is to not try to pin people down based on some demographic trait that they have. And using the kind of why do white women vote Republican, it's just a uh, more of a hook to bring people in to think about like how complex all of this really is and why it is that you see these underlying chicken and egg questions. Like why is it that women are, let's say, paid less? Do they think they deserve less? Something Jen was talking about earlier, you know, even to the question of when you talk about, you identify a group that people haven't really talked about, right? Until recently, you never really, even before 2016, you didn't hear people talking about women voters, maybe the year of the woman, what was that, 92, supposedly? Not so much, right? So it's 2016, the white women come under this microscope, and it's a little bit freaksome for them, right? It's a little bit, generally speaking, uncomfortable. Otherwise, for commentators, whether they're on the left or the right, to scrutinize white people and white voters, because ordinarily, when we say voters, we don't have to say, we don't need to modify that. But when we're talking about African-American voters, we got to modify African-American voters, right? We can't just call African-American voters voters. We have to call them African-American voters. Note that when we say, you know, Joe Biden is a candidate for president, he's just the candidate for president. But when Hillary Clinton ran, she was the woman candidate. Or when who's Joe Biden's running mate? She's a female, first female vice president. Now, some of that's in the novelty of it all. But I think what this discussion has made me see is that bringing the majority group, the default category under the microscope, it's a little bit uncomfortable for people in the majority because we're not used to really talking about you in terms of race. Like we don't talk about you and your race and why that ought to matter because you've always been the default category. You know, someone, um, Norm, I don't know if you're still on. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're a white guy, Norm. Not at all. Raw, b- bad guess. And it's part of the problem of sort of. Oh, I'm sorry. What are you then, Norm? Jewish. Okay. But are, are you like, so you're, you're Jewish that I, um, you don't consider yourself I to be exactly. white on, on the census form. Absolutely not. No way. Okay. So give me a friend of yours. Who's a white guy then. I live in New York city. I think there's two white guys here. I, I, I met them. Before. Bill de Blasio. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you Bill de Blasio, right? So no one ever says, Hey, Bill, where are you from? And you're, and he's like, I'm from New York. And they, and they don't really say to him, not really, where are you from? So the thing about being white is that for whether you're Jewish or not, and I, I hear you, Norm, um, I'm not Jewish, but you know, I'm Asian. So not the same, but you know, similar in some ways, the Chinese and the Jews, we've had it all going on for a long time. It, instead, I think that indeed, um, uh, I think that it's hard to be put under a microscope and when you've always been the default category. And so it's hard to hear something like white supremacy. When people say white supremacy, the way Abdul is raising it, I don't think was to accuse individuals of being white supremacist. I think what he is saying, correct me if I'm wrong, Abdul, you're saying that there's a system of white supremacy that pervades everything. And let me give you an example. I wouldn't consider myself to be white supremacist and probably very few people would accuse me of such because I'm, you know, I'm a small Asian woman and no one would be like, oh, you're a white supremacist, Jane. But answer me this. When I go in to teach American government and I teach U.S. politics, you know, like here's the Constitution, here's the three branches of government. I teach that at USC. The first, And the way I teach it is the way everybody teaches American government, right? Where do we introduce black people? in the beginning of American government. Where's the first time we introduced black people in American government? Slavery. Now, I'm asking you, is that, it's not like me trying to be white supremacist, I'm doing it the way that everybody has done it. And if everyone has done it, if that way implicates African-American people in a white supremacist framework, then I too have submitted to it, not knowingly, definitely not willingly. And I think that seems to me the spirit of what Abdul is saying. Not that he wants to accuse white women of being white supremacists, but that it it is built into the fabric, into the DNA of the nation, into the DNA, into everything and everything that we do. 
it gave me great pause to think maybe I shouldn't be teaching American government this way and I'm not going to going forward. But it took a big racial reckoning, as we have seen in the last year, for me to stop and rethink that, even as a person who studies race on a regular basis. So what I want to say in tying up is to say that, you know, we for us to move forward as a nation, as a world, we have to keep talking to each other. And we have to put aside some of the stuff that may seem like, oh, you know, you're criticizing me. I think sometimes we are criticizing each other. But I think more often than not, what we're doing is we're looking to say, how do we do what what happened, what went wrong, but how can we do better? And just one last thing to think about is, I mean, Abdul, I wrote down what you said, that uh, feminism without intersectionality is, what did you say, complicit, completely compatible with white supremacy. I want you to just end by thinking about Portland, Oregon. Do you remember in the summertime when the, there were these white women? Because like Portland's overwhelmingly white. They made the wall of moms. They wore yellow shirts and and bicycle helmets, and they brought their leaf blowers for their the wall of dads. All these white people wearing yellow shirts, and they said, you know, the feds are here, but the moms are here, right? They've called the feds in, but the moms are here. These are primarily white women. And what did they do? They were protesting the murder of George Floyd. People, regardless of the color of their skin or how they were raised, can be brought over to base, to understand and to support basic egalitarianism, human rights, communication, decency. And I think that there's an example of maybe they didn't understand intersectionality, but they also were fighting white supremacy. So I think there are examples and plenty of examples where humans, regardless of the color of their skin, have come together to try to make the world a better place. And I hope that's what we're doing with these podcasts. I think that you are doing. And I hope that what we take away from this is that we're not accusing each other or saying, because you're white or because you're black or because you're Asian or because you're Jewish or whatever you are, you're bad or you're good. That's not what we're saying. I think we're all just trying to understand each other better. So I appreciate your comments and I'm delighted to have participated today. Uh, Jane, John, uh, we're more than delighted to have you back. You're a little bit of our kind of mid-Atlantic little rock star. Uh, we had a, a great mailbag when you came on the first time last year. Uh, for people who have come into the room, we're just about to wrap up, but um, this is Mid-Atlantic, the uh, room where we look at US and UK politics. Obviously, uh, today we've just focused on, on US politics and we've had Jane Jun um, with us on Zoom and we patched her through. So that's why it looks like I'm, I'm talking to myself on, on the app. Why don't you uh, hit that little green icon and uh, become a follower of our room. Generally, we record on a Thursday. Uh, this is a podcast. And um, you can kind of join in with the deliberation. And Jane said something uh, very powerful, and it was very apropos to the general ethos of, of Mid-Atlantic. We, we're unashamedly left of centre, but we do want constructive dialogue with our right-leaning brethren and, and, and sisters, and that's incredibly important, uh, which is the reason why maybe I jumped on the white supremacy thing maybe a, a little bit a little bit too soon because I know that for many people it's a it's a trigger expression and uh and then automatically they, they kind of they kind of switch off they can do anyway but anyway uh Jane Jun thank you for being with us on, on this Thursday um sorry if I mangled the time um we've done one hour 20 minutes um and thank you for listening to us uh, in the audience and thank you for Clint uh Thank you to my uh, brother, Clint Losey, on stage. Thank you for Sophia. And, and thank you for your, for your questions, Norm. Uh, they, they were uh, most excellent. And uh, there you go, folks. This is me, Royfield Brown. Give me a follow and or uh, follow the room mid-Atlantic. We do this every Thursday, uh, but with a wider pundit team where we put the world to rights and uh, left of centre politics is right-thinking politics. That's what we do here. But we embrace everybody and try and win them over by the strength of our argument and our conviction take care everybody take care have a good evening bye bye by any means necessary FBI leader when Napoleon led Boulogne for a year 
Zachary Davis, Shane Redfin, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Try and I, Free, Rudyard Lynch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, BT Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. Stamps.com. Code program.